Thanks for joining us back on our special mini series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns. I'm a behavioral health specialist at the IFF. In the last episode, we discussed how opioid use disorders are treated. In this episode, we'll hear from two experts who work with firefighters in substance use treatment settings about the special treatment considerations for firefighters who are addicted to opioids. First, we have Dr. Abby Morris, a board-certified psychiatrist and the medical director at the IFF Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Treatment and Recovery. Dr. Morris, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. We're so lucky to have you. Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work with firefighters? Oh, sure. So um, I have been at the IAFF Center of Excellence. It's been open for just almost four years, but I have been there um, since before it opened and helped to set up the center and the curriculum there. Um, before that, I, um, I've worked in community behavioral health on ACT teams in hospital settings, and I have volunteered as the uh, medical consultant for the county where I live for their SWAT team and the um, CIT department of the police. So I've had a lot of experience working with firefighters. Since being at the center, um, not only am I board certified in psychiatry and neurology, but I'm also now certified as an addiction doctor. So I'm uh, a double board certified, which makes it oh so much more fun. It's a lot of great experience to, to draw on, um, both for our members who are getting treatment at the center and for this conversation today. It's been a lot of fun. I, I really, I think I learn more though from the firefighters and um, the time I spend at the fire stations uh, than I do from many of the books I, I read. The public often thinks of firefighters and EMS professionals as responding to the opioid epidemic, but we know that there are brothers and sisters out there who are misusing or addicted to opioids themselves. Um, in your opinion, what are some of the unique factors to firefighters that can lead to opioid misuse? So I believe that there are many of them, actually. I think that the world of first responders and the personality of first responders lends itself almost perfectly to becoming a substance abuser, if not specifically an opioid um, abuser. So I'll start off talking about, you know, the, the U.S. Fire Administration describes the personality traits of emergency responders as, quote, action-oriented risk takers. And that in and of itself, if you think about that personality, can lead to substance use disorders. Um, we also see that, you know, what we know about firefighters is that they're very high risk for injuries. So shoulder injuries, knee injuries, hip injuries, burn injuries, just from the nature of the work that they do. And so they're often at the doctors or orthopedic surgeons getting uh, getting care, getting surgeries, and then they're placed on prescriptions much more commonly than the general population. And so they start on a regular dose of a prescription opioid, and that regular dose may work very well for their pain, but may also work for an underlying anxiety disorder or sleep problem or an avoidance issue. And so they may continue that a little longer. Now, a risk factor about being a firefighter in that situation is if if a 22-year-old college student goes back to the orthopedic surgeon and says, hey, doc, I think I want two more months of my pain medication, that doctor might say no. But firefighters are trusted members of society. And when they say, hey, doc, you know, I, I'm really still in pain and I'd like two more months of my pain medication, a doctor is probably much more likely to trust a medical professional, a, a firefighter, and give them maybe a, a few more pills or two more months worth of that prescription leading to a much higher risk of, of addiction or dependence. So there's access on the job, there's the risk of injuries, they're trusted members of society so that the doctors may fill more prescriptions or more, more uh, pills in each prescription. They have sleep deprivation, so they're more at risk for needing something to help them with sleep. And they have higher um, uh, co-occurring anxiety disorders, and uh, opiates are fabulous anxiolytics. It takes away anxiety. So it's a powerful motivator when you take a pill and it gets rid of your uh, underlying anxiety. So those are all factors, I think, that lead to higher levels of addiction. Firefighters are sort of um, 
perfectly built for addiction. So it sounds like there are a lot of factors that could lead to opioid use or misuse uh, among firefighters. Um, What about co-occurring mental health problems? How do they impact the development of substance use disorders among firefighters? So co-occurring mental health disorders play a very large role when it comes to substance use disorders or addiction. I think that's true both in the general population, but especially true with first responders and firefighters. We see that very clearly at the center. There's very few people who come in for treatment of um, an addiction or a substance use disorder that, that don't also require some treatment of mental health issues. Most commonly, the most common co-occurring um, mental health issues that we see at the center include post-traumatic stress, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a very intense and severe anxiety disorder, um, attention deficit, and depression. And I think what's interesting about that is, from my experience, I think the anxiety tends to predate even becoming a firefighter. I think people who are anxious as children or adolescents tend to be drawn to firefighting or first responding, you know, police, fire, because it's very protocol driven. It's very structured. So if you're an anxious person and you go into a field that's very masculine, that's very protocol driven, it's very comforting in some ways. And you're not going to be seen, you're going to be very respected and you don't have to explain yourself. And so it's very comforting to be in those fields. But then you have somebody who is, who already has some anxiety who is then being exposed to extreme stress, decreased sleep, bad health factors, poor diets, and um, multiple exposures of trauma. And so over time, people may learn to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. And that's a pattern that we commonly see at the center leading to admission. So we know that opioid use disorders can be treated with medications, but that's not always an option for firefighters. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that issue and what alternative medications there are? So it's interesting because oftentimes with substance use disorders, we end up having to substitute a different medication in the same category to treat a substance use disorder. So for example, when someone is withdrawing from alcohol, we oftentimes have to give them a benzodiazepine. So someone coming off of alcohol is given Ativan or Librium until they can be stabilized, but that's still a controlled substance. Someone who comes off of opiates may be given a short-term dose or taper of buprenorphine or Suboxone. But in the long term, we have been trained to give something called medicine-assisted therapies, which might be long-term substitution, say of buprenorphine or methadone, to get somebody off of opiates. But the reality is that buprenorphine is a partial opiate, and methadone is is an opiate in and of itself with a very long half-life. So if you if an employer uses the standards of say the Department of Transportation or in in the world of firefighters it's the NFPA obviously they don't want somebody handling heavy equipment um, things that are sharp driving a a fire truck while under the influence of a partial or whole um, opiate so there are restrictions to what firefighters can um, can be prescribed to treat their opiate use disorders. So even though the methadone and or the suboxone may help one keep them from using or misusing the opiate while still treating the underlying pain disorder, they're just not options. So we may have to look for other options to treat pain. And they may not be as effective as the opiates themselves, but they'd be a lot less dangerous. Some of those include things like Neurontin, which is also called gabapentin, or Lyrica, or Toradol. We may use very strong NSAIDs like Tramadol, I'm sorry, like Flector, um, which is Diclofenac, or Voltaren gel. We may use things like Capsaicin, or Lidocaine gel, or Biofreeze. And again, those things may not be as entirely effective at erasing the pain, but if they can intervene in pain management or confuse 
the nerve cells and the brain in feeling the pain messaging, um, then the person may have to learn to manage their pain by using things like a TENS unit or an alpha stim unit, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, massage, physical therapy, chiropractic. I think the most important thing most of the time is finding a really good pain management doctor who's aware of the person's addiction issues and also aware of the limitations of the firefighters and aware of the standards of the NFPA who can manage that person's issues in a way that makes sense for that person where they can function with whatever pain they're left with but still not be under the influence in a way that makes it unsafe for them to perform their duties. I think that's such an important point um, that members out there who are using or misusing opioids and are looking to reduce or stop their use really do need to find a physician to work with who understands the occupational needs of the fire service and what medications are and are not allowed for active duty firefighters. Yes, and who understands the need to be able to be awake and alert and not foggy, um, to be able to be cognitively, um, you know, very aware and alert during the time that they're on and not to be able to um, have any kind of withdrawal issues at the times when they're on or off service. And that's a difficult balance, a really difficult balance. It is. I know you mentioned that the Center of Excellence has been open for more than four years now. Um, How is treating firefighters different from treating patients from other professions? So it'll be four years in March, and we have had a good amount of time to really learn the the personalities of firefighters. I, I will definitely tell you this is a very unique group of people. Um, it is a joy to work with firefighters. And, and I, I would say the main reason I love working with firefighters and, that, and why it's unique is that when a firefighter comes into treatment for the right reasons, no one works harder than a firefighter to get better. Um, now, not everyone comes for the right reasons. Sometimes they come because they've been dragged by the ear. Sometimes they come because their wife made them come. Sometimes they come to the center because the, the, their lawyer told them they should because it will look better in court. But when a firefighter comes to the center because they really want a change in their life or because they really want the help, they work so hard and they are so appreciative of everything that you do on their behalf. And that is something we don't often see in medicine, especially I think in psychiatry. The other things I think that are unique about firefighters is that um, they have very unique personalities, um, a lot of OCD, a lot of obsessive compulsive personality traits. Um, these are the people who will rearrange every dishwasher after it's been loaded, um, who, who won't delegate because they have to do it themselves. They can be very difficult sometimes in that way, but they can also, they have good intentions, at least when they do those things. They have often had very difficult childhoods, very chaotic childhoods, which leads them to be quite empathic. They want to help people, protect people. They want to make sure that people don't have the same sadnesses that they've had, but they're empathic natures have made them targets, I think, often for narcissists in their personal lives. So they've suffered lots of disappointments. They've suffered lots of social and emotional pain from others. They've been targets for a lot of people. They have a lot of codependency in their in their life, um, sometimes from their families of origin, sometimes in their um, their marriages. They live in sympathetic nervous system not just at work. They're not just in fight or flight when they're on duty, but they're in fight or flight all the time. You take a firefighter to lunch and they are still living in sympathetic nervous system. They are still waiting for a tiger to come in the front door. And that sympathetic nervous system um, all the time takes a toll. And it leads to, I think, an exhaustion of of their bodies, of their souls, And it leads to, I think, a lot of consequences, including that need for balance between that sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And if the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight, 
the parasympathetic nervous system is feed and breed. So we see a lot of co-occurring binge eating issues as well as porn and sex addiction with firefighters. So by the time they come to the center, they may be in a lot of trouble with their marriage, with their relationships, like I said, with porn and sex. Um, And maybe they've never talked about that. Maybe they've never dealt with that. Maybe this is the first time anyone's asked them about that. Um, So we've had to get really comfortable um, as clinicians, as medical providers, delving into corners of people's um, histories where no one's ever gone before. So there's a lot of uniqueness in working with firefighters, both as a a medical professional, as a clinician, than, than I've ever done working with anybody else. Then those are just a few things, by the way. I'm sure there are definitely more. I know you have a lot of really in-depth and potentially difficult conversations with members who are in treatment about their treatment options, the trade-offs among the different options. Could you tell us a little bit about what those conversations are like? Wow. Yeah. You know, I am, it's such a honor. It's so amazing to me sometimes I, I often um, am very taken aback by how much people trust me. Like I'm just like Dr. Abby and people will come into my office and tell me their deepest, darkest secrets and they trust me. And that means so much to me. And I take that so seriously and I protect that. And I, I hold that so dear. Um, the firefighters that I've worked with over time mean so much to me. And those conversations are, are so important. I I see myself as being on a journey with every firefighter that I work with. And I try to explain that to them the best way I know how I think sometimes the firefighters come in and they think that they're going to be told what to do. They're not going to be in control of their care or their treatment They've been around doctors who tell them this is what you have to do or this is the only way to do it. And I try to tell them that at the center, we do things a little differently. And again, I love analogies. So the analogy that I always use is that we're in a car together and the firefighter drives up to the center in their car with all their baggage in the trunk. You know, I have all this baggage from all these years of things and we're in the car together and I'm the GPS. You know, I've been in this neighborhood a really long time and they're going to tell me where they want to go, what's important to them, where they are now and where they want to go. And I'm going to use this experience I've had in this neighborhood to come up with a plan. And I might tell them to drive down Main Street for two miles. And when they get to Second Avenue, make a right. And they're going to take off in that car and they're going to drive down Main Street. And when they get to Second Avenue at the light, they're going to look both ways and they're going to go, I'm going to go left. And they're going to turn left. And I'm not going to stop the car and I'm not going to grab the steering wheel and I'm not going to push the brake and I'm not going to do anything to change that decision because that's their decision because it's still their journey. And I'm just the GPS. So the only thing I'm going to do in that journey with them, because I'm still in the car, is I'm going to recalculate. And the journey isn't over because they made a different decision, right? Because we might see some fabulous things on the left of Second Avenue. There might be a great place to go. It just might take us longer to get where they wanted to go. And I think that's sort of how I view treatment in those conversations. Like no one has to give up who they are, where they're going because they come in for treatment, but they still have an eye on what they want, what their goals are. And it's up to them how quickly or how slowly or how roundabout we're going to get there. But if they stay in the car with me and we do this journey together, we we might actually have some fun getting there. Does that make sense? (laughs) It does. I love that GPS analogy. So let's let's stick with that for this next question. Okay. What is what is Dr. Abby? What does Dr. Abby the GPS say about what should a member be doing when they return home from a residential substance abuse setting? Um, when a firefighter is being discharged uh, and they're going back to their original environment, what should they expect and what should they be doing? Well, they need to slow down. Do the speed limit for a little while because they've they've probably been going a little too fast 
for a while and they've missed a lot. You know, they've been on the highway and they've missed a couple of exits and they've, you know, they've gone a little too fast. So they just need to slow down and, and get in the, the, the right lane and take their time. Because I think that the only way to kind of get through that transition home is to be patient. They're going to have to be patient with themselves because they're a little different than when they left. They're going to see things a little differently. They're going to understand things a little differently. And they're going to, it's going to be harder at home to practice all the things they've learned than it was in this cocoon at the center. Some people, a lot of the guys will call at the center, they'll call it a bubble. They feel like they're in a bubble. And I call it a cocoon. I, I think you're sort of, you're sort of cooking yourself and metamorphosizing into something great. And you're a cocoon. But the reality is that when you get home, you have triggers and you have stressors that you didn't have at the center. And so you're going to have to be patient with yourself because it's harder to do all those things at home than it is. There's no Dr. Abby there. There's no clinician there. There's no one telling you, you know, here's your medicine. Don't forget to take it when you're at home. And there are liquor stores at home and your dealers at home and your, your buddies who are drinking every Saturday night are at home. And so it's harder. And you have to be patient with the people around you because for a little while, you're going to be under the microscope. People aren't going to know what to expect from you. People are going to be kind of keeping an eye on you to make sure that you're okay. People may not know what to say or if they should invite you to the baby shower or the Christmas party because they don't want to mess you up. And you want things to be normal and you want people to be normal around you. And they may not be normal around you for a little while. They may need some permission from you. And so I think that it's always hard on that transition home, but if you're patient with people and if you're patient with yourself and you understand it's a process, you know, I, I make the analogy that it's like a little like building a house. It's better not to rush that process that you want to build a really good foundation you want to get help from all the experts. Like if you're building a house, you don't always hire the same person to do the plumbing that you would the electric, that you would the roof. That when you build a house, you're not going to do it alone. You're going to get help from different experts. So when you get home, make the appointment with the psychiatrist. Reach out to your primary care doctor. Make the appointment with your therapist. Maybe go to the marriage counselor and get help from the experts. Reach out to the people or in your network, your friends, let them know you're home and you want them to be around in case you need someone to talk to at two in the morning. Um, fill your prescriptions and, you know, expect the challenges. But the best thing about building a house is that when you finished with all the challenges and everyone walks away from all the specific jobs they had to do, you typically have this fabulous endpoint. You have this great house and it's always worth it in the end if you're patient. I think that's my best advice is to, if you're using the car analogy, slow down, do the speed limit, invite people to come in, roll down the windows, turn up the volume of the radio in the car and have some fun. And listen to your GPS. <laughs> <laughs> listen to Dr. Abby. Uh, right. Some really great advice about what to expect um, when somebody's coming home from a treatment center where maybe they've been away for an extended period of time. Dr. Morris, what else would you like our members to know about the special treatment considerations for firefighters who are addicted to opioids? One thing, I, I wish I could show you a graphic, but the reality is that the relapse rates for drug addiction and alcohol addiction, which is about 50%, is the same as the relapse rates for chronic illnesses such as hypertension, asthma, and diabetes. And yet we don't stigmatize those illnesses when people run into challenges. When someone shows up at their primary care doctor and their blood pressure is kind of high, the doctor doesn't go, oh, geez, did you relapse? How many times do we have to go through this? Like, don't you know by now? You've got to stay on the plan. They say, oh, is your beta blocker not working right? Let's see, what other options do we have? Should we try a calcium channel blocker? Have you been on lisinopril before? Right? 
when somebody at home takes someone's blood sugar and it's 200 and they go, oh, gee, did you have a donut this morning? Those were for the kids. You're not supposed to eat those, right? We don't have the same reaction when somebody maybe messes up, had some pain and took a Percocet that was in the medicine cabinet. But the reality is that chronic illnesses are a process and relapse is oftentimes an unfortunate part of that process. And the relapse rates are no different for substance use as they are for hypertension, diabetes, and, and asthma. And we have to sort of, sort of view them and reframe them differently so we're not stigmatizing people or punishing people in similar ways. And it's, it's really hard, I think, for us to wrap our brains around that fact. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a really hard concept um, for individuals and for sis- the larger society to right. treat behavioral health like we treat other health issues. Right. We don't want a drug addict on our shift with us, but we'd be okay with a diabetic with a blood sugar of 200 when in reality, a blood person with a blood sugar of 200 could crash that truck just as easily. Right. And I think we have to be paying attention to all of our brothers and sisters and everyone's health issues and be thoughtful about the stigma that we're attaching to certain health problems and not others. And, and be there for, for people no matter what their health issue is. And be supportive of people and not punishing. How can I help should be the question. How can I help? That's an excellent message and an excellent place for us to end today. I think treating behavioral health issues like we treat other you know, physical health issues or issues that are more thought of as physical health issues, the same Uh, And being willing to help out our brothers and sisters with any medical or mental health issue that they're facing uh, is really what we're all about. Agreed. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Morris. And I want to thank you on behalf of our 320,000 IFF members across Canada and the U.S. for your work every day at the IFF Center of Excellence. Thank you. I, I love my job. Not many people can say that every day, but I truly love my job. And I love being part of what the IAFF does every day. So thank you. Next, we'll hear from Drew Kane, a lieutenant with the New York City Fire Department, licensed master social worker, and a credentialed alcohol and substance addiction counselor with the FDNY Counseling Services Unit. Drew is also a master peer support instructor for the IAFF. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and your background? Sure. I've been with the New York City Fire Department 25 years now. Uh, I currently run what we call our Substance Abuse uh, Addiction Transition Program. It's uh, short is ATP, which is part of our counseling service unit. Basically, what we have is mimics an intensive outpatient program for firefighters returning from treatment and transitioning uh, back to the firehouse. Great. That sounds like some really strong work happening up there with the FDNY. Um, What are some of the reasons members show up in your office? You know, what brings people into treatment with your program in the Counseling Services Unit? Well, the program is, you know, we like to have it as a voluntary program. Uh, So a lot of times we do get uh, voluntary referrals so people know of our unit. Uh, it's been around since actually 1966. It's a peer-based program. It's one firefighter helping another firefighter. I would say most of the time um, it is voluntary uh, or strong suggestion, shall we say, from a, a co-worker or, or a company officer. Uh, unfortunately, we do have legal issues when legal issues do occur and somebody um, possibly might have a, a, an arrest for a, a drinking issue or uh, you know home issue, something might be occurring um, in the job or on the job uh, that would cause a officer to make more of what we call formal referral. Uh, prior to that, it would be, we try to do what we call soft referral. So it's uh, like kind of not pen to paper, motivate the individual to get the help and seek out the help on their own. Uh, so most of the time, or and the legal issues also within the department. So the department has our own rules and regulations. So if somebody violates um, a state or city law and gets arrested, they will get refer- referred to us. But also, if they violate some of our policies and procedures of the New York City Fire Department, they might get a recommendation as well. So lots of different ways that members might make their way uh, to your program. Um, Why is it so important that 
it's a voluntary program for the most part. We're a, you know, a soft referral rather than a mandated treatment experience. Well, what we found over the years and what I've learned from my predecessors is, um, you know, if a person is coming in on their own, the success rate tends to be, I don't have the facts and figures on this, but from what we've seen in, in our department up here, uh, when the person does come in on their own or is given a, a soft nudge, a suggestion, strong suggestion, whatever you may, um, the results are usually much better. Uh, we, our program is based on abstinence and 12 steps. Um, so buying into that or, you know, approaching that, uh, sometimes, you know, people need to be open to that. And we always felt, and, and my philosophy on it as well, uh, you know, being in this field for a while and had my own personal recovery, um, that when people do it on their own, it's just a much more fruitful outcome. That makes sense. That's probably true with most things in our lives, <laughs> that if we choose to do something, the outcomes will be better than if we're forced. Right. Um, so in that vein, how do you motivate a firefighter who is ambivalent about stopping or reducing their drug or alcohol use? You know, how do you make that connection and um, make it their choice to begin a program like yours? Right. I mean, that in there lies some of the difficulties, right? So we, we, we do have some clinical screening tools, a uh, thing called the SASE, which is a subtle attribute screening uh, inventory. Uh, there's the CAGE quiz. There's, a, there's a many different um, tools used to uh, see if somebody clinically meets the criteria for a substance use disorder, uh, I believe is what it's entitled now. Uh, it's called now. Um, so we'll use those, but really it's from a peer-to-peer -peer type approach. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sit down with somebody and, um, you know, see what's going on in their life. It's, it's more of a conversation style uh, and just seeing, hey, you know, so you're here now. Um, what's been going on? Why do you think you're here? What's your reasons? Uh, but also letting the uh, clinically, you might say, you know, meeting the person where they're at. What's going on in their life? How is there, you know, give them the opportunity to explore the let's say consequences, if any, uh, right? The individual may not look at it as a consequence as of yet, but usually one of the um, go-to kind of statements might be, well, you know, you're, you're here with us today and uh, you're here on your own. Uh, you know, it may be a soft referral from an officer or a family member, and we don't want to see that get to something where it's more required for you to come. Um, so there must have been some consequence that got you here today. So I usually like myself, I, I usually like this, you know, what do you think you're doing here today? And what, what did you expect to get out of our, um, our, our meeting today? Try to keep it very simple. That makes sense. So a couple of times um, throughout our conversation, you've mentioned uh, your program is peer-based and alluded uh, very strongly to peer support. Um, what is the role of peer support to help members who are addicted to opioids? Well, with, with peer support, I, I think it's important to understand, um, you know, the, the, the culture, uh, of firefighters, uh, we tend to be somewhat guarded at times, especially when it comes to ourselves. Uh, you know, we're always looking to help others, always looking to do the right thing. Uh, but sometimes when it, the focus is on us, we tend to look the other way. We, we, we you know, we're, we're always the helper. Uh, and I think to answer that question, you know, I would have to also mention that, you know, it, our program started in 1966 when it was it was based on alcohol. It was just one individual had a problem with drinking and the department didn't know how to help them. Uh, and at the time they went to an inpatient facility, they returned and they weren't really sure what to do. And they kept that individual at headquarters. And not too long after that, I always say, you know, or not, there was another firefighter that had a, you know, a drinking problem in New York city. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, they helped they, they've got the first guy to help the second guy. So that's literally how our program started. And that's why our very strong peer to peer. So in other words, it's based on a 12 step model, which is one alcoholic helping another alcoholic. It started with us in, like I said, 1966, we've gone through, uh, you know, no urine screening, urine screening, all these different policies and procedures. But at the end of the day, one peer, one person who's walked in that other person's shoes we find is the best way to help somebody. And when you have a unique culture like the fire department, um, and especially, especially what we've seen uh, in this past several years when it came to opioids, the nature of that addiction, and it's still an addiction, uh, I believe it's the first 
probably addiction I've seen that that is uh, definitely needs to look be looked at different than alcohol, but it is um, more the, the members who are addicted with opiates because of the legality, right? So alcohol still legal. Obviously, you can't use alcohol and drive a vehicle. Safety sensitive position, being a firefighter. But when it came to opiates, opioids, you know, people were getting them legally at first. Then we clamped down on that in society. Then they turned to illicit drugs, heroin, or buying pills off the street. So those individuals were much harder to reach. So when you had a peer, another firefighter that went through the process, and usually not easy to get that individual to move them through those stages of change, um, but once they do and they see the other side and see the, the, how life can be without a substance, they are by far the best individual to talk to the other individual that's looking uh, or seeking for help or was told soft referral or referral, whatever, whatever it is, whatever way they got to us, it's, it's the best way is to have another peer tell them or advise them what they can do and how they can do it. Are there other ways that treating a firefighter who is addicted to opioids is different than treating a firefighter that is uh, dealing with an alcohol addiction? No, I think that's a terrific question. I'm glad you asked that because my background was always alcohol, um, cocaine, marijuana. Uh, we didn't see a lot of that in the fire department, um, but one thing that I could say that I personally um, witnessed, seen, experienced when the advent of the opioid uh, addiction started hitting the fire department was it was definitely a uh, mental obsession. But when it comes to opioids, it was the first time that I saw somebody that th it, it truly affected their thinking. And it is very hard to reach that individual because of the grip that that addiction has on the, uh, on the brain. If somebody goes, for example, to get detoxed from an opioid, very difficult to, uh, to be detoxed off opioids. Usually it's a taper. In other words, where they will just gradually, gradually uh, wean you off. Um, as you most probably know, I mean, most individuals that succumb to opioids, it's through overdose. So the, I don't know all the clinical and uh, you know, medical terms for it, but I know that the half-life of an opioid in someone's system is much different than that of alcohol. So a lot of individuals that are able to stay clean, not use whatever term you want to do, use for several days, they, when they get that very, very strong craving or they're in an environment where they want to use, they go back to use the same amount of opioid, heroin, whatever the substance may be. Um, and it causes an overdose because their system doesn't, isn't ready for it. Whereas alcohol is a much, much more dangerous detox. Uh, somebody, we always recommend you need to be hospitalized. Uh, you, you have to be careful of seizures. When it comes to opioids, the person may think and feel, and they truly feel that they are going to die from the physical ailments that they believe they have. And many times we've gotten that individual to a hospital and Maybe the vital signs are a little bit high, but they don't meet the criteria to be hospitalized. So to me, that was the biggest difference that I saw between treating alcohol and um, opioid addiction was that you, it was much harder to reach the individual and it took a lot longer to gain the individual's trust um, and to help guide the individual and have an understanding that even though they had that mental obsession, to use that they weren't most likely, I can't say definitely, they weren't going to succumb to the addiction. In other words, they weren't gonna die if they didn't use that minute. So I think that's the biggest uh, difference. It just has a grip on someone's brain and thought pattern that is in my, my eyes uh, different than alcohol. I always say, when I would do an interview or, or an assessment with somebody with alcohol uh, that comes into the office, I feel I could sit with that individual for 45 minutes to an hour um, and help them see that there might be a different way of living that maybe didn't include alcohol right at that 45 minutes, not total abstinence, but right there we introduce it. And by the end of that time, I might have the individual thinking about treatment options or slowing down, whatever it may be. When somebody comes into my office uh, that has an addiction to opioids, I, I always felt that they felt that they were trapped 
I always say, you know, a firefighter term, they were always looking for the secondary means of egress. In other words, like when you got on a roof, they were looking, how are they going to get out of that office or get around me to get out of there? They, they had no interest in being there. Um, and they, their attention span was extremely short. And I think that whole focus is where they're going to get that substance again. And they, it, it, it just grips the brain like nothing I've ever seen before. Thanks, Drew. I appreciate you explaining some of the differences uh, between somebody who's addicted to alcohol and addicted to opioids. One of the things you mentioned while you were talking is helping somebody move through the stages of change. And I know some of our listeners may have mental health backgrounds and understand that model and be familiar with it. But for those who aren't, um, what what is the stages of change? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I'm going to probably get the name wrong, but it's Prochansky and Clemente uh, were two individuals, I think psychologists that came up with, uh, I believe it's five stages of change where somebody is in what they call pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, ultimately moving the person into um, action. But the pre-contemplation stage and the contemplation stage is usually when we see somebody, right? So the pre-contemplation might be, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it, or maybe there's an issue in my life uh, that I need to possibly address, you know, very kind of on the fence where con- contemplation is where they actually start thinking about maybe making the actual change. So that's a, um, a scale, a continuum to move the person uh, back and forth or guide the person. We're not moving them. We're, we're just guiding them. They're, ultimately, they're making their own decision. Um, that is the probably the background for the uh, motivational interviewing. Uh, which was by uh, two gentlemen, Rolnick and Miller. Uh, apologize if I got those names wrong, but they were very instrumental in developing a program of helping a person through those st- stages of change, which is called motivational interviewing, um, where you're, it's not a directing style, it's not a guiding style, uh, or, or it's, I'm sorry, it's not, a, it's, it's not a following style or a directing style, it's more of a guiding style. Well, you're just there. Uh, the example that I use is for those of us who remember uh, driver's ed in high school, where you had the steering wheel, you had the gas, you had the brake, but the instructor had the brake, an, an additional brake on their side. So they let you steer the car. They let you control the rate of acceleration and the braking. But if they saw you going in the wrong direction or they saw you get into trouble, uh, they would stop the car and say, hey, let's take a look at this. What did you do wrong here? Um, I kind of say that to the same as motivational interviewing. I use that example as a guiding style. So we're allowing, because as we said earlier, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, when somebody comes to the the conclusion themselves that they need to make a change in their life, the chances of that individual following through with that change, in my opinion, is tenfold. And I've seen that happen many times. So um, changing stages of change, and none of us, you know, historically, nobody really likes change too much. Uh, but when somebody has negative consequences in their life, uh, moving through those stages of change are pretty critical to get to that level of acceptance where, uh, you know, I, I accept that I have a problem with, with uh, drugs or alcohol and I need to do something about it. And this is an option um, to do something about it. Got it. So I'm going to focus here a little bit more. So from what I'm understanding, the stages of change is a theoretical model that's been the basis for a lot of substance use treatment over the years. And the idea is that there are different stages that somebody can be in related to making a change. So those would be pre-contemplation that, you know, maybe they're not really thinking about it yet about changing the behaviors, contemplation where they are beginning to actively think about it preparation, where they're preparing to act, make the change, action, where they actually begin to change the behaviors, and then maintenance, where they maintain the changed behaviors. And then, of course, dealing with or managing potential relapses if they occur. How do you match your intervention or working with a firefighter based on what stage of change they're in? What does it look like for somebody who's in pre-contemplation or contemplation versus how you help somebody who might be in the action stage? Well, you know, pre-contemplation, somebody might come to us again, they may not even be in that yet because they're told to come in, right? So, uh, or they are given that strong suggestion as we referred to earlier. So the pre-contemplation, like I said earlier in the podcast, 
Hey, well, what do you think you're doing here? You know, I like to sometimes put it back on the individual. What did you, what do you think was going to occur here today? Uh, and, and most people in our uh, facility, you know, a very conversational style, but the goal is to get the person again to be in charge of, you know, control their destiny to some level and guide them where they can't go. But, you know, pre-contemplation to contemplation is a, is a pretty big step, right? So you, you need to get that person, uh, you know, if you take a, a, you know, a little snippet out of cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, uh, you know, you need to kind of help them change their thinking, guide them to change their thinking. And, and how do we do that is, you know, we have to kind of, you know, subtly give them some examples, you know, open up their eyes, let's say, to say, uh, you know, well, how, you know, I guess for the rougher, the rougher way of saying, you know, how's that working out for you? You know, so some of that in that pre-contemplation to contemplation um, and then into planning is, you know, okay, so how's it working out for you? They decide, they get into complica- con- contemplation, excuse me, that where it's not working out so great. And then you start that, that planning phase. Well, how can we address it? How can we help you address this? Uh, that's more of the, the planning phase where then we have different treatment options you know, inpatient, outpatient. Uh, we fortunately up here in New York City have the option where an individual can stay with us uh, and receive uh, uh, treatment. We're AA-based, we're abstinence-based and 12 steps. We use the 12-step model and uh, to get them into that planning. And then, then the action, you know, okay, how are you going to do this? How are you going to get back to work, maintain, right, which would be the next one, but what's the action? And then that making the actual change doing one of these treatment modalities, doing, you know, uh, participating in one of these treatment options. The the maintenance, in my opinion, is, um, you know, keeping that going, but I, I like to use the term more of acceptance, uh, because once you accept something, it's a lot easier to maintain something. Uh, I think we, we, you know, that gets missed a little bit. The, you know, the maintenance is more, it's almost when you accept your, your position and where you're at and your, what you need to do, I think the maintenance comes almost second nature. Okay, I'm here. I need to do this. Uh, how do I do it? And I think I shouldn't say second nature. It's, it, it is a, a, quite a change when somebody stops drinking, even for a short period of time, if they can maintain it. Um, but it's, it, there's guidance out there. You know, again, th- this is a guiding style. There's AA, which has, uh, you know, been around for uh, years and years. And, and we find it the, the go-to. It's a, it's a camaraderie that is similar to the camaraderie and the relationship and the brotherhood and the sisterhood of firefighters. So true. You've talked a little bit about the orientation of your work in the counseling services unit um, and the history of it being founded in 1966. What makes your program unique? You know, how is this different from the other treatment options that might be available to people out there? I think that the, the single most unique aspect of our program is that it's just firefighters from our department and EMS workers from our department. It has firefighters and EMS personnel that are counselors. We do have uh, civilian staff as well, um, but I think that's truly what makes it so unique. Plus, under the good graces of our administration and the history, uh, since we've had such a long history and and the um, I'd like to say successful outcomes on many times, not all, but many times successful outcomes. They, they've been gracious enough to allow a member to basically be what we call detailed. Um, his work assignment is with us, uh, short term, of course, but it's basically, I like to refer to it as it's the rehabilitation or the the uh, the aftercare, So, uh, which everybody refers to, but, but what I mean by that is, so if somebody goes inpatient, I, I use the analogy of it's like breaking uh, your femur, your leg, right? Your femur is the largest bone in your body. It takes very long to heal. And if it's a compound fracture, it can take even longer. Um, you put that in a cast, right? So you immobilize it. So I, I, I attune um, having a, a situation like that to being impatient. So in other words, you're I don't, maybe not use the same term as immobilize, but you you remove the individual from the environment and the availability of substance and you put them inpatient in a controlled environment for their benefit. It's a voluntary admission. They can come and go as they please, but usually when somebody gets there, they stay. So I'd use that, those 28 days, in my opinion, is kind of like having a cast on your leg. At day 28, if you were to take the cast off, you're not going to go and run the New York City Marathon, obviously. There's going to be 
extensive rehabilitation, especially if you're, if, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know, but if you're in a cast for four to six weeks, right, you, there's atrophy, there's things that occur to your leg that definitely need some rehabilitation. So our program serves as that rehabilitation for somebody when the cast has come off their leg, when the obsession has come off their drinking, I like to say, or their, their addiction, when the obsession has been removed by the cast, right? Um, which is the inpatient, they come to us and we're the rehabilitation. We're the one that lets the, we're the, we have the ability to let them kind of crawl before they walk, you know, walk before they run, getting back. And I think part of the reason for that, again, is the, the, the open-mindedness of our administration to allow that to happen. The uh, fact that it's been happening since 1966. And again, I think they found that when you took an individual from an environment, such a helping, caring, loving environment of inpatient, right? all about that individual i know sometimes they they joke they say three hots in a cot right so you, you get in your meals you make your bed but it's an environment that's 100 percent helping that individual reality is that's not the kitchen table in the fire department right we've come a long way but that's not the kitchen table in the fire department we're not there yet so we have what they call what we've deemed the um, addiction transition program uh, hence the name so we transition that individual we do uh, based on self-help, but we do uh, individual sessions. We do group work. We do workshops uh, to help the person identify some of their character defects. We even do workshops back to work, how to go back to work and deal with the many uh, social aspects and social pressures of our job. I mean, our culture has always been um, kind of like the last great American cowboy. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of hard living and, you know, dangerous job. Um, you know, which is, which is not true, but it's, uh, you know, it's a different occupation, which comes with a lot of stressors. So for example, you know, the fire department culture, uh, obviously is heavy around drinking, but when you have individuals that are using other substances, example, opioids, uh, one of the things that we found, uh, that was obviously helpful for, with the transition program was getting that person to transition back to work. One of the differences that we found between alcohol and the opioids is that the opioids, you know, they come in a pill form. They can slip into your pocket very easily. Uh, nobody sees you taking them usually. Uh, you could tell somebody you're taking some medication. Uh, so there's definitely a, a difference there. The, sometimes the euphoria, the, the, the product of what that uh, experience of that individual, right, might mimic someone being intoxicated. So when they're in a social event, right? It, we tend to uh, promote alcohol use uh, uh, or just use in general, right? So promotions, um, funerals, family events that we invite uh, our firefighter family to, um, having firehouse picnic, firehouse softball tournament, firehouse dinner dance, right? All surrounding alcohol. If somebody is also addicted to opioids, you know, they're going to use at those times as well. You may not visibly see them use like I referred to. It's a much different uh, medium of, of uh, getting intoxicated, getting high, uh, but it exists. So in our program, we try to transition the individual so that they have the tools and the skills to enter back into our culture appropriately and to have the tools and skills and know how to address other people right you know that that's a big issue too how do how do i tell people or you know um you know how, how are people going to approach me obviously we can't it's not a perfect world we can't give them every uh scenario they're going to run into but we encourage them to get connected with aa in their local community we have the ability in our program every wednesday at 11 a.m we have an alumni meeting uh every quarter we have a very large gathering. We call it a quarterly gathering, and we celebrate um, sobriety. We try to do that at different times of the years where the risk or the uh, possibility of a relapse is, is present. Uh, for example, we'll do uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, we'll have a, that's a large uh, drinking event and also a fire department type event uh, where people will drink and use. Um, we then do around the summertime uh, because of the we find that there's a lot of softball, a lot of picnics, a lot of things like that, and people the change and people are outside going to the beach, and sometimes that change uh, sparks uh, use or relapse. The, the 
Next event we do is around September 11th. That was a very large day uh, in our country, in the world, and very much so in our department. Um, we don't have as many members, uh, obviously, as we used to that, that were around during September 11th, but that tradition and that never forget um, motto and mantra carries on. And then we have the holidays. So uh, we try to space them out so that people have the availability to come to our alumni meetings. Um, again, when you look at alcohol and you look at opioids, you know, alcohol is ever present in our society. Opioids, yes, they would prescribe for pain. Unfortunately, people got uh, extremely addicted to them. There is a much more secretive type uh, approach to that since people, um, you know, there's a, there's a different stigma with that. Uh, I, I believe when it goes from opioid use to heroin use, obviously, uh, you know, the terms we always use, junkie, addict, things like that. But that we found doesn't hold true. Uh, there is no the faces of addiction have changed over the years where your typical thought of uh, someone who is a junkie or an addict. When I started with the fire department 25 years ago, were usually, you know, um, ghetto areas, inner city areas, poverty, uh, socioeconomic uh, areas that were, um, you know, run down, where now we found that the, because of the opioids, that, that affected everybody uh, across the United States. Mm -hmm. That's right. So how do you think treating firefighters with an opioid use disorder is different than treating a civilian with, with the same problem. You know, what's unique about treating firefighters? What do the mental health professionals out there who want to work with firefighters need to know? I think one of the things that's probably, it, it, you know, you have to target on the shame, the guilt, the um, identification. So what I mean by that is opioid addiction, the opioid epidemic across this country, in my opinion, was the first thing that I've seen personally, and I, I don't know if other experts will um, agree with this, but in the fire service. So for example, what I mean by that is I've never seen anything affect the fire service from so many different levels. And that our own individuals on our own department and departments across this country because of the high physicality of our job, um, we're prescribed opioids. It's it makes sense, right? You have somebody who uh, hurt a shoulder, rotator cuff, somebody uh, meniscus, uh, ACL, you know, hip injuries. We get them all the time as firefighters. You're stretching hose, pulling ceilings. Once they get those injuries, if they need operations, right, they go to a doctor, they're going to get physical therapy or operation, but they're going to get prescribed opioids. Things have changed recently, but then they'll get those prescriptions. And a lot of times those individuals who were never predisposed that's, I think, one of the key differences. We have certain individuals that if you do their family history and everything we look for somebody in addiction, they're not predisposed. They don't have a family history of it. They don't have recent, uh, you know, events that would say this person has a, a, an addiction problem, right? So that, that's the first aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that our own members were experiencing that. Then we had our own members, family members experiencing that. Then we were getting and still getting on the rig, on the truck, responding to individuals that were overdosing. So it became such mainstream. And then you had our own individuals that were overdosing that, that were having addiction issues. So I think that was the difference in how it affected culturally a firefighter. It came at, it came at us from every angle. There was, there was instances in our city where I would talk to individuals that were on an engine company that would arrive first on the scene for a medical call that sometimes in a night do three or four uh, Narcan individuals, three or four times, um, or three or four in, separate individuals. I mean, so that was, so they're seeing that. So if you think of a firefighter that's Narcanning somebody, but they themselves possibly maybe even had to be Narcan themselves at one time, or they themselves have that addiction and the same addiction of the individual they're working on. And then culturally, the way the stigma surrounds addiction, oh, that person, you know, they, they should do something different. They should be able to not use. They should, you know, it's their fault, uh, you know, that type of stigma. So that takes the individual that's the firefighter and kind of closes their world even more, pulls that shell around them even more, the cloak of secrecy, whatever you want to call it. And they're not going to talk to anybody about that. 
because they're, they're listening to all the other firefighters in the, when they go back to the firehouse and you're talking about your run and, oh, that guy's a loser and he's using and all the different um, incorrect terms that we use uh, that adds to the stigma. So it just, just makes that firefighter a lot less likely to come forward. So if you're a clinician that is talking to somebody with an opioid addiction or, um, you know, somebody who unfortunately has made the uh, transition to heroin uh, once they couldn't get the opioids anymore, you're also dealing with somebody that is a public servant, so there's a safety issue. You're also dealing with somebody that the stigma surrounding that is, in their mind, so they never want to divulge that. They never want to say that they, they have an addiction problem, but they also it, there's also a legal issue as far as if they're caught, right? They are in job jeopardy. Most of the departments across the country have some level of punitive action on a member that is arrested right it, for with illegal substance whether it be a suspension or uh you know a fine with uh, taking a pay leading all the way up to obviously termination so that's another reason why an individual when it comes to opioids you know not obtained legally or transitioning to heroin they don't want to talk about it they want to be very sure that when, if they do talk about that with the clinician that it is um you know it's under lock and key so we've covered a lot of ground here today about the Addiction Transition Program with the FDNY Counseling Services Unit, and a lot about your experiences helping firefighters over the years with addictions. Um, what else would you like to share with our listeners about opioid addiction or getting help for an opioid addiction in the fire service? You know, my biggest message would to individuals looking to get help or, or to change the aspect of the fire service is that it's okay. It's okay. There are safe places that you can go to and get help. Uh, I, I think that's just, it's okay uh, to try to reduce that stigma. You know, I, I've been talking on this topic for many years and saying how, you know, we, that, that, that patch that, that uh, every department wears so proudly on their shoulder, uh, we need to put a new thread in there. We need to be uh, more understanding of addiction. Addiction is deemed by the American Asso Medical Association as a disease, yet we don't treat it like a regular disease, right? It becomes punitive. Uh, so I think the big message is to try to um, reduce the stigma, stamp out the stigma, uh, and let people know it's okay. There's safe places to go to help yourself with the addiction. And, you know, I always say that those, there's those four-letter words, right, that we get in trouble for using, but one good four-letter word is love. You know, there's, there's love out there. It, there's understanding out there that it is a disease that you can't just stop using. If you look at history, uh, you can go back to, um, uh, I believe it was Nancy Reagan, right? Just say no. Well, you can't tell that to an addict. And that's been talked about many times. You can't just say no when you have a physical and mental addiction to a substance. Not that easy. So I think that the, the main message to say is like, it's okay to come forward. Don't hide in the, that cloak of secrecy, uh, the, 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 the veil of stigma, and, and realize that by not coming forward, uh, you know, the next person doesn't come forward. You, unfortunately, can suffer the consequences uh, of, you know, family and job and dysfunction and all those different things that, it can occur, that can occur in, in, in addiction. Um, but if I don't come forward... The next guy may not come forward. So everybody that takes a step forward and says, hey, I, I have an addiction problem. Um, uh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. It, it just empowers. Uh, we have millions of people across this country that are addicts. I think as a firefighter, sometimes you have to understand that we're no different. You know, even though that we experience many different things in life, um, it, it's important to know at the end of the day, you know, when you, when you take your helmet off, you take your firefighter hat and go home, you're, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're a brother, you're a sister, uh, you know, and you have to act as such and take care of yourself in order to take care of others. But I think the, the, the big thing is just, it's okay. It's okay to come forward and, and seek out help. Thank you, Drew. It's such a powerful message. And I love the analogy that you've used a couple times comparing a substance use problem, which is, you know, generally thought of as a, as a behavioral health problem to medical problems that people might think about more often, like breaking a leg. And it's great to see more and more departments across the country and Canada treating behavioral health problems 
on the same level as what are considered more medical or physical health problems, because there really is no difference between the two. So Drew, I want to thank you so much for being here today. It's been a great conversation. And thank you for all the work you've done over the past 25 years, helping IFF members uh, who are dealing with addictions. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the good work that the IAFF is doing with peer support and addressing individual firefighters behavioral health needs. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.